Hey, this is Eric Benson, the host of Climify, a podcast that connects design educators with climate experts to help bring more climate safe projects into our design classrooms. Through my conversations with these climate leaders, I hope to help you Climify your syllabi and to create the next generation of climate designers. In fact, at the end of each program, my guest co-creates a design assignment for you to bring into your classroom for your students. This season, we are talking to women leading the way in climate action through the lens of each of the drawdown.org solution sectors. You can tune in to Climify anywhere you get your podcasts or directly at climatedesigners.org forward slash edu forward slash climify. And we'd love if you join in the conversation on Instagram or LinkedIn at Climify Podcast. This is Incomplete Design History, a podcast that explores overlooked and ignored topics in graphic design history. It is our goal to deepen and expand the knowledge, understanding, and interpretation of design history. Because history is messy. It's incomplete. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Mandy Horton. There is a rich history of filmmaking in the United States. Hollywood is recognized worldwide as producing some of the highest quality films with the best and most beautiful actors and backed by abundant resources for sets, costumes, locations, and high-tech special effects. The history of film posters used to promote those films is equally rich. Some movie posters are as iconic as the films with highly regarded designers and illustrators such as Saul Bass, Paul Criffo, Joseph Karoff, Drew Struzan, Bob Peake, Tom Jung, and Bill Gold, among many, many others, widely recognized for their contributions to the medium. Like the rest of America, movie making was segregated for much of its history. And there is another separate history of film and movie posters that doesn't get much attention. Author, photographer, and collector of black film posters John Kitch calls this the separate cinema. Mainstream films from the silent movie era up to roughly the 1950s avoided films that cast black actors in leading roles and avoided telling stories that accurately reflected black culture, families, and life. According to literary critic, professor, historian, and filmmaker Henry Louis Gates Jr., black film, like any other medium, reflects the journey of African Americans in society. Black filmmakers told these stories themselves, producing feature films and having posters designed to go with them. While information about early black film poster designers is scant, we do have a large selection of their work. There are still African-American designers expanding the collection of black film posters with their own work for contemporary African-American filmmakers. The timeline for black film dates back to the silent film era, when theaters and films were still segregated. Films for white audiences were different from those for black audiences. While it was expected that black audiences would also watch and enjoy films produced by Hollywood and white filmmakers, the same could not be said for the reverse. One of the many problems with the mainstream Hollywood white filmmakers is that they tended to use racial stereotypes to portray black actors, depicting them as jesters, servants, and villains. 
It wasn't just white filmmakers. Some actors also contributed to stereotypes, including perhaps, most notably, Theodore Monroe Andrew Perry, better known by his stage name, Stephen Fetchett. Perry's place in Hollywood is controversial to this day because while he was one of the first African-American actors to be cast in mainstream films, he also played the same stereotypical character over and over again, a lazy, shiftless black manservant. Then there were films like D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, which John Kitsch describes as one of the most racist films ever commercially released. The story for Birth of a Nation was based on a novel written in response to Uncle Tom's Cabin titled The Klansman. Uncle Tom's Cabin was an attempt to garner sympathy for enslaved people and to promote abolition. The story of the Klansman was intended to reflect what was regarded by white supremacists as the awful suffering of the white man during the dreadful Reconstruction period. Reconstruction was a brief period beginning at the end of the Civil War in 1865 and ending officially in 1877. Though unofficially, some of the amendments made during Reconstruction had been rolled back much earlier. It was during this era that Congress officially abolished slavery, following the Emancipation Proclamation, which was an executive order. Congress also granted full rights to all black people, freedmen and formerly enslaved alike. Well, full rights to men anyway. Women, of course, had fewer rights than men, and black women had even fewer rights than white women. But granting black men citizenship allowed them to run for political offices, and many did so easily winning their seats in the South. Prominent white men who had been leaders in the Confederate Army were neither allowed to vote nor run for office. White folks likely saw this as a blow to their status and reacted by rolling back or outright attacking black rights whenever they could. It meant political efforts and the creation of Jim Crow laws, as well as terror and violence and the formation of domestic terrorist organizations like the Ku Klux Klan. Birth of a Nation is the story of the founding of the Klan and could be described as a racist, revisionist, and untruthful historical fiction that only vilifies the emancipated black population. The film demonized and villainized black men in particular. John Kitsch notes that perhaps no other film has ever articulated so powerfully the bigoted white American nightmare of black aggression and male sexuality. The film was so harmful in its portrayal of African-Americans that it prompted a response from black leaders and led to the formation of the NAACP, which worked to ban the film. While the NAACP's efforts to suppress Birth of a Nation failed, independent black filmmakers stepped up and started shooting their own films. Historically referred to as race films, these movies were positive, uplifting, and counteracted the stereotyped portrayals of African Americans in mainstream cinema. The movies we call race films were made by black filmmakers and producers, often touted an all-colored cast, and were produced from 1912 to 1950. Some of the earliest black filmmakers included the Foster Photoplay Company, Oscar Michaud, and the Lincoln Motion Picture Company. Many of these early black filmmakers had a clear goal in their filmmaking, to make films for and about African-Americans and portray them in anything other than humiliating roles, which was the tone set by white mainstream filmmakers. This practice has been called racial uplift and many black filmmakers were committed to it. They cast actors in non-stereotypical roles as farmers, oilmen, explorers, professors, rather than the jesters, servants, and villains of white filmmakers. 
In particular, Oscar Michaud said that he intended his films to be propaganda, which was intended to further the race and not hinder it. Black cinema existed outside of the Hollywood mainstream, and as such, black filmmakers did not have the support of big studios with deep pockets. The budgets for producing film posters were likely equally low, sometimes resulting in poorly designed posters. Yet despite low budgets, there's also a large number that are beautifully designed. Even working for racial uplift, black filmmakers sometimes succumb to pervasive stereotypes and prejudices, including a preference for light-skinned black actors. The high yellow or light-skinned preference is most obvious in the film Regeneration from 1923. The hero and the heroine were lighter skinned while the actor who played the villain was noticeably darker, a difference also evident in the film poster. The term high yellow was used in the 19th and early 20th centuries in the United States to describe people with white and black mixed ancestry, specifically to denote lighter skin tones. The high part refers to the higher social class of light skinned black people and the preferences shown to them. Oscar Michaud is believed to have intentionally cast light-skinned actors in his films. Girl from Chicago and, to a lesser extent, Murder in Harlem both seem to support this claim. The characters depicted on the posters appear to be mostly white and could be confused for a white film rather than a race film. This preference was a result of colorism or discrimination based on skin color, usually preferring lighter skin tones over darker ones. Around the 1950s, following World War II, black culture began to be subsumed by white culture. Hollywood studios saw a profit in black music, dancing, and other performances and began making feature films with black actors and performers for white and black audiences. In 1953, movie theaters started to integrate as a result of the U.S. Supreme Court striking down a law that segregated restaurants and other industries, including movie theaters. Many Southern states were slow to follow suit, some upholding segregation laws a decade or more later. It is entirely possible that producing movies for black and white audiences and desegregation of movie theaters led to the decline of race films, since there was no longer a need for separate films for separate audiences. The creators of many of the posters that were used to promote early black films are unknown to history today. Anonymous designers lost to history. A large majority of the older posters from 1900 to the 1950s are unsigned, though some have a printer's mark or logo. Further investigation into the history of black film posters might require tracking down the printers and lithographers who produced them. Though not all posters bear the mark of the printer, the authors of The Separate Cinema make the argument that some printers might have omitted their mark so as not to be associated with what was deemed as questionable content. But what do they mean about questionable content? The example that was given is a poster for the 1931 film, The Exile, which featured a scantily clad dancer and no printer's mark or logo, indicating that the printers might not have wanted to be associated with the sexualized content. Perhaps white printers also omitted their mark or logo from black film posters to avoid association with black cinema. Similar to how during segregation, when white businesses did serve black customers, they often required the service to be discreet, compelling them to use back doors and service entrances. There's no evidence one way or the other, but it seems to be a possibility. 
But when investigating the history of black film posters and looking for a history and practice that includes black designers, the search is woefully disappointing. The publishers of the books that represent the two largest collections of black film posters, Separate Cinema and Close Up in Black, do not report specific information on most of the designers, and many of the designers for the earliest films are altogether unknown. The poster designers that we do know about appear to be mostly white, but there's still very little information about them or their posters. Instead, these books present a history of black film as represented by the film posters that were used to promote them, which is just as valuable in graphic design history, even if it isn't what we expect. So while the hope in doing this research was to uncover a wealth of information about black-owned lithography firms and black commercial artists who made these film posters, the history of black film posters is more likely to include a few anonymous black artists and a majority of white artists attempting to depict black culture, either authentically or using stereotypes. Yet the absence of black designers for these posters is a bit surprising. During segregation, many black owned businesses and entrepreneurs kept their money in the black communities whenever they could. Some of this was out of necessity. Too often, white-owned businesses refused to work with black customers altogether. It was also in the interests of the black community to keep money within the community. Despite the dearth of information about the designers, the posters themselves have a lot to tell us, and they are invaluable artifacts to this rich history of black culture. In her AIGA Ion Design article, can we teach history of graphic design without the cult of hero worship? Aggie Toppins reminds us that the history of graphic design is a deep well. Artifacts from graphic design history and the stories that they tell can be more important than the people who created them. Fortunately, there are at least two major collectors of black film posters we can thank for archiving the invaluable history of black film, Edward Mapp and John Kitsch. Edward Mapp is described as a pioneer of black film studies who amassed a collection of over 1,200 posters representing a large portion of black film poster history. Mapp himself states most of the designers who created these posters are lost to history, though he notes that some are signed and it might be possible to find out more about them. Mapp also noted that as they exhibited the posters, he had a few people reach out to say a family member worked on one of them, though he doesn't seem to have published this information. Mapp supports the research that few, if any, of these designs were by black artists. He also believes that in instances where a black designer did create the artwork for the poster, it was most likely a one-off invitation and that these creators had other jobs that paid the bills. In terms of design, Matt feels that the modern practice of film posters has lost its artistry, focusing too much on actors and photography over art and design, showing reverence for the older film poster designs. This is a criticism that has been cited by other film poster aficionados and design critics as well. In 1995, Mapp donated his collection to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences collection in the Margaret Herrick Library. Portions of his collection of black cast film posters and other memorabilia toured the country through 2005 under the Smithsonian's Traveling Exhibition Service as Close Up in Black, African American Film Posters, and a book by the same name was published as part of the exhibit. John Duke Kitch is a photographer with an interest in film and movie posters. His first black film poster was a gift in 1973, which hung in his dorm room at Bard College. 
From there, he began collecting extensively. Kitsch's collection, known as The Separate Cinema, for his 1992 book of the same name, includes more than 38,000 film posters, lobby cards, and photographs representing 30 countries. Kitsch's collection was purchased by the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art in 2020, and there are plans to make it a permanent exhibit in their new building when it opens in 2025. With so many black film poster designers going uncredited and lost to history, it's significant that Art Sims was one of the first nationally recognized African-American graphic designers to produce movie posters. He is the CEO and co-founder of 1124 Design Advertising in LA, which was founded in 1981. 1124 is a company that designs promotional materials for films and other industries as well. They are committed to promoting African-American art and culture. So while Sims will work with anyone, the company prioritizes work that advances black arts and culture. Sims attended Michigan State University from 1971 to 1975 on a full scholarship and worked for Columbia Records as a summer job while still in school, a dream job for most design students. After graduation, he designed albums for EMI, Capitol Records, and CBS, though it's hard to pin down the exact timeline. Sims' work includes covers for such albums as Little River Band's self-titled album in 1975, Bob Welch's French Kiss in 1977, Mink DeVille's Cabaretta in 1977, Minnie Riperton's Minnie in 1979, and The Average White Band's Shine in 1980. Eventually, Sims left CBS to start 1124 Design Advertising, which had been in the works for a few years, but his job as an album designer left little time for his own business. It was at this point that Sims began to design film posters. Reports of where he got his start are conflicting. Some say his first work on film poster design was for Spike Lee's 1986 film, She's Gotta Have It, but he's also cited as the designer for Steven Spielberg's 1984 film, The Color Purple. It's possible that work started on Spike Lee's film before its 1986 release, which could have included designing the movie poster. Whatever the case, the connection between Spike Lee and Art Sims is obvious, and Sims went on to design poster after poster for Lee's films, such as Malcolm X and Do the Right Thing, just to name a few. Sims' career as a designer has not been without controversy, and two instances stand out, involving the design for Clockers from 1995 and Bamboozled from 2000. In the Clockers controversy, Sims was accused of stealing the design of Anatomy of a Murder from the film's poster and title sequence designer Saul Bass. For his part, Sims acknowledged that his design intentionally reused and referenced elements from Saul Bass's iconic film poster design. Sims stated, I was paying homage to one of the most famous designers in the industry, and that it was a salute rather than a ripoff. But Bass was not happy about the homage. He complained that the convention is that when anyone steals something, they call it an homage, and stated that it's disappointing that anybody would do that. Bass was further surprised that anyone would do that and think that the infringement would not be discovered except that it seems really unlikely that Sims and Lee would ever think that the design would go undetected. The reference to anatomy of a murder is more than obvious. The clocker's design has a similar layout, texture, shape, and overall style or technique, with small but notable differences. 
both feature a human figure that implies a dead body. But in the clocker's version, the head faces the opposite direction and is wearing a ball cap and the body is riddled with bullet holes. So what does that mean? It seems like Sims and Lee wanted the clocker's design to be seen and the connection to Bass's earlier design is obvious. If true, then it's plausible that Sims and Lee's intention was likely an homage. In any case, Bass didn't see it that way. It was reported at the time that Bass received calls from other designers asking if he had done the work for the clocker's design himself. His response, when a well-known creative person such as me is perceived to have created a knockoff of my own previous work, such a perception is a mortal blow to my reputation as a creative person. Perhaps questions about borrowing from himself and challenging his creativity or originality is what caused him to get so insulted, more than the borrowing and the homage itself. Ultimately, the clocker's design was pulled and another less striking and less controversial design replaced it. Sims and Lee became embroiled in another controversy over the poster for Lee's film, Bamboozled. The poster design featured racial stereotypes along with a headline that reads, starring the great all-Negro cast. The white actors were cast for the film. The poster was a clear reference to earlier race films. Bamboozled was a darkly satirical comedy about a modern-day minstrel show in which characters dress in blackface. Blackface is traditionally recognized as when white actors wear black makeup to appear as black characters usually with overdrawn lips. Even black actors playing black characters in the days of minstrel shows were required to blacken their faces. This process is known as blacking up or sometimes corking up because they used burnt cork as the makeup, following the same process as white actors. It might seem odd to some that black actors would dress in blackface, but historically this was common. When black actors and performers were trying to make their way in a white-dominated and segregated society, they were sometimes forced to wear blackface and play stereotyped characters. Black actors had to do it if they wanted to be accepted by white audiences and earn a living. The practice dates back to minstrelsy and vaudeville performances of the 1830s and has a long, unfortunate history in film. Blackface reduced black people to caricatures and promoted harmful stereotypes. Characters like Stepan Fetchik continued to promote these harmful stereotypes even as blackface began to disappear from filmmaking. This disturbing history caused audiences to push back on the images presented in the bamboozled film poster when it was released in 2000. Yet when audiences found out that Sims, a black designer, created the poster and learned of his intention with the design, these perceptions changed. In his career, Sims has designed posters for many iconic films, including, in no particular order, Do the Right Thing, Dream Girls, Girl 6, A Huey P. Newton Story, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X, Summer of Sam, Woman, Thou Art Loosed, When the Levee Breaks, A Requiem in Four Acts, New Jack City, Black Dynamite, Love and Basketball, Mo Better Blues, The Secret Life of Bees, Crooklyn, Brooklyn's Finest, and Black Panther. In 2010, Sims was honored with a traveling exhibit of his work by AIGA. The exhibit, known as Design Journeys, was a collection of stories about the professional lives, contributions, and portfolios of leading African-American, Latino, Native American, 
Asian American, Southeast Asian, and Pacific Islander designers. The exhibit was also available online through the AIGA archive and reportedly included an essay about Art Sims and his professional career. But research for this podcast was unable to locate any of this content on the current AIGA site. Additionally, Michigan State University, Sims' alma mater, held an exhibition of his posters called Movies and Messages, the movie posters of Art Sims in 2015. Art Sims is still an active designer whose work in and out of the film industry will continue to inspire designers and film goers everywhere. Today, the historical value of these black film posters goes beyond graphic design history. And in some instances, all that remains of a historic film is the poster. Scott Collins of the LA Times tells the story of The Bulldogger, filmed in Oklahoma by the Norman Film Manufacturing Company. In 1923, a black rodeo performer named Bill Pickett starred in a silent Western called The Bulldogger. According to Collins, the film has survived, curiously enough, only on paper. Scholars believe that the last complete celluloid print burned or disintegrated years ago, and what remains is the poster, which includes a color illustration of Pickett leaning against a post, a cryptic smile curling across his craggy face. In the essay, Movie Posters, The Paper Trail of Black Movie History from Close Up in Black, author Thomas Cripps reminds us that movie posters are ephemera, and as ephemera, they were created as artifacts meant to be thrown away after they were used. As items of ephemera, for the large part of the history, no one saw a need to archive them or document the history of film posters. Cripps states that the change from posters as trash to posters as artifact did not happen readily. Posters, after all, are not actually movies. They are paper trails, snapshots of movie history. And for archivists, they were always too big, too fragile, too dry, or brittle to warrant saving. But thankfully for us, some people have seen past the traditional definition of ephemera and the problems created by their mass production to help record a vast and valuable history of black film. This episode was produced with the aid of a grant from the University of Central Oklahoma. Research and writing credits for this episode are from me, Mandy Horton, with additional research assistance provided by Taylor Hill, Dean Kelly, and Colby Streller. Story editing provided by Spencer Gee. Sound design and engineering by the University of Central Oklahoma's Center for E-Learning and Connected Environments. Music by Christina Giacona and Patrick Conlon of Onyx Lane. If you would like to contact me about this episode or about the podcast, please email me at hello at idh.fm. That is H-E-L-L-O at idh.fm. Our website can be found at idh.fm. You can also connect with us on Instagram at Incomplete Design History. And be sure to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts.